let me give you a little bit of background on what we're going to talk about. I've got to be really careful that I'm going to be on a razor's edge dealing with this because we're going to deal with a guy today who has a severe issue, but it's more than just an emotional problem. It's more than just a mental issue. That being said, about 18% of the U.S. adult population uh, suffers from some form of anxiety-related disorder, some kind of um, uh, depression or something like that. According, that's according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. For Christians, and Teresa, I bet you deal with this nearly every day, for Christians, it seems that there should be an inverse correlation between a mental affliction or emotional affliction and one's level of faith. But often, there's not. It's just not that simple. Now, we're going to meet today in our story a man who was not in his right mind. He was in desperate need of Christ's healing. And the symptoms that he was dealing with, in fact, I've read some commentators who are a little more conservative on this, who um, actually a little more liberal probably on that side theologically as I've been reading them, who would probably put this fellow's um, malady in, in terms of some kind of... Um, uh, manic depression, but the truth is the symptoms of his problem may sound similar to those with some kind of mental illness, but the problem was not that at all. In fact, it's, the, the Bible makes it really clear that the problem here is demonic activity. So we're going to kind of deal with it in the, in the terms that it comes to us in. Um, so what I want to deal with is, um, is deal with the story in the way that it occurs, but I want you to know that regardless of what your malady is, Jesus has the ability to heal, okay? Whether your uh, malady is physical or social, emotional, um, or whether it's some kind of oppression this, this young man was desperately in the throes of. You're looking real funny. Have I just stepped in something I didn't know it? You got, a, you got a really, you got one of those, I'm going to have to have a talk with him, looks on your face. Okay. All right. She's going to quit coming if I keep picking on her like that. Now, have, maybe you've met someone or even now have someone in your life who would it seem is in chains. Uh, whether it's a sin pattern that they just can't break out of, an addiction they can't break out of, or some emotional illness, it just seems that there's no way out. What I want you and I to deal with is the truth that when life seems the most hopeless, Jesus shows up. I've seen it a hundred times in my lifetime. When, the life, when life seems most hopeless, when the situation seems most hopeless, Jesus has a tendency to show up. Now, let me give you a little bit of context on what we're dealing with today. Most of us are aware that the land of Israel in Jesus' day was controlled by the Roman Empire during Jesus' life. Israel was, however on the extreme eastern edge of that occupation, that empire, literally on kind of the frontier of Rome's uh, influence. Not far east of the Jordan River, and you remember most of Palestine was bordered on the eastern side by the, by the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River running down to the Dead Sea. So that most of Israel kind of lies to the west of that. On the east side of the Jordan River, which was formerly... Um, um, Israel territory, um, not far east of the Jordan River, a person would enter what was known as the Nabataean Kingdom, 
which is that's where Paul fled for safety after his conversion experience. And you remember sometimes when we read about that in Galatians and other places, it will say Paul went to Arabia. Do you remember that? That's kind of the area I'm talking to about here, east of the Jordan River. Romans didn't finally seize control of that area until about A.D. 106, so after the New Testament age. But a bit farther north from that, still on the east, is an area known, and we, we talk about it here in this chapter today, as the Decapolis. It literally means the ten cities, and it was situation, situated between the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if you want to look at a map and kind of put yourself there, the Sea of Galilee was on the north. And this is on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, east of there, and a little bit south of there. There was a, It was a Nabataean-controlled area uh, there. It was an independent but unofficial league of city-states. So Decapolis literally means ten cities. So it's these ten, uh, ten cities who, um, who kind of acted kind of in league, or they were in kind of voluntary association with one another. Uh, you ever been to, you ever been to um, Minneapolis or St. Paul? Isn't it interesting that those two places kind of seem like one? Um, I, I'm sure if you're a St. Paulite, you, you probably say, no, I don't live in Minneapolis. And if you're in Minneapolis, you say, no, I don't live in St. Paul. But Twin Cities, well, this is the Ten Cities. Okay? It's kind of, kind of got that same connotation. Those municipalities were not under Rome's control, at least yet, but they were allies of the empire. Now, let me tell you who lived there. It was kind of a cook's mix of folks that lived there. There were some Arabic people that lived there. There were some people with Greek and Roman background. There were colonists and business people that came there. Some had migrated from lands farther east, the old Persian and Babylonian empires. So when you think of that, you can think about Iran and Iraq. There were some of those people there. Um, and then some were Jews who had just moved to the eastern side of the lake. So you've got kind of this large group of people that come from all kinds of background. But despite the fact that there were some Jews there, what you and I need to kind of recognize is that when Jesus goes to the Decapolis, and we're going to see what trouble he went to to get there, when Jesus goes to the Decapolis, he's entering one of the few times in his public life that we read about where he enters Gentile territory. He's no longer home. He's gone outside of Israel to do what he's going to do there. So if you can kind of imagine um, uh, the Sea of Galilee in the north, he's just to the southeast of that, but he's outside. You know, he spends a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. Certainly his hometown of Nazareth was near there, and it was up in the north, but he's gone across the sea, and it's really now, you could argue, in kind of a foreign land. He's in Gentile territory. Okay, now, so he's making this little excursion, and here we're going to see who he meets. Would somebody, I don't know what we're going to do without Bob today, but somebody read 26 down to 33 from Luke 8. Louise, would you read that? You got your Bible with you? Uh, Steve, read it. Great. I got you off the hook.
Okay, now, I want to help us with a little confusion. I put a couple of references there. Here in Luke, it says that Jesus is in the country of the Gerasenes. Okay? In Mark, it's going to say a similar thing. In Matthew, it's going to say he's in the region of the Gadarenes. Okay? So is... Uh, do the, do the, does the Bible contradict itself? This is one of those places that higher critics will say, well, you know, it's kind of contradictory. Well, the truth is, okay, two of these ten cities were, uh, were um, I want to say it right, Gerasa and Gadara. Okay? So the Gerasenes were from Gerasa, the Gadarenes from Gadara, but it was like Minneapolis and St. Paul. It was, they were from the same area. There was not a mistake being made here. It's just a difference in describing the region. Okay? So don't get kind of hung up on one of the gospel writers says one thing and one says the other. These were two of those ten cities that Jesus is kind of outside of the nation uh, in, in this Galilean Gentile area, eastern, southeastern Galilean area. But he's in Gentile territory, so that's what we've got to see. Now, what, I, what kind of appears to me here, and by the way, you can write there, here Jesus makes a rare excursion into Gentile territory. All right, now, okay, I, I came up with a little um, memory aid here, and it's silly, a little, well, it says a good thing, so it's not that silly, but, but you might think it's silly, just to remember what we're dealing with here. If you back up to verse 22 in the same chapter, you'll see that Jesus has the disciples take him over there. This is one of the stories where they face a violent storm on the way across the sea to get to where they're going. And I'm going to tell you, in context, I wonder if the main reason that Jesus is going over there is to meet the man he's going to meet. Okay? So, here's my way of remembering this. You ready? He crossed a raging sea to set a captive free. Okay? Now, you don't have to use that, but that helps me remember where this is. He crossed a foaming, um, um, squall-ridden sea. And he meets a guy who's got a storm going on in his life. And he sets him free. That's kind of the context in which this story comes to us. Now, um, in verse 27, what we see, this is interesting. They've just calmed the sea. They've got, they've got, he's just calmed the sea. They've gotten across there. Uh, the disciples are saying, Whew. And right then, as Jesus gets off the boat, he encounters a guy that is so demon-possessed that he's out of control. Right there. What a welcoming committee. All right? That's who he meets. He has... Um, bizarre behavior. People stayed away from him. Now, what you need to put in your blank there is Jesus encounters immediately a man who was feared by everybody he encountered. Why? Everybody was afraid. Do what? Well, he probably did appear to be mean. He was loud. He said inappropriate things. It was, ab it was abnormal. It wasn't kind of the normal thing, Larry. I heard you say something. Uh, he was naked. <laughs> now, by the way, according to, remember Louis Grizzard? <laughs> he used to say, the difference between the word naked and naked 
is when you're naked, that just means you got your clothes off. If you're naked, that means you got your clothes off and you're up to something. Uh, <laughs> this guy was naked. And he was out of control. He was animalistic. His behavior was kind of animalistic. <clears throat> and people just kind of stayed away from him. They were too afraid to give him what he most needed. Karen? <clears throat> Sorry. You know, I saw that too, and I really didn't research it. But it's just a different telling. And by the way, if you get into the story, it could, you could argue there were 5,000 demon-possessed men here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's interesting. I didn't do the research on what the difference is, but you're right. It does report that there's more than one man there. Now, people stayed away from him. What he most needed was human companionship and touch. But because of the way he acted, people stayed away from him. That ever happened? Still happens, doesn't it? Would somebody go back and read Mark 5, 5? There's, a, there's an aspect of this story I want to be sure we don't miss. Mark 5, 5. It's a different telling. It's Mark's telling of the same story. Got it in stereo. I love that. Go ahead, Cindy. Okay, now, isn't it interesting here? This guy was cutting himself. Uh, it seems like when I was first uh, involved in, in my life 12 and a half years ago or so at the university, what I began to encounter is kids that either talk about teenagers or, or um, some of these uh, college kids themselves that had at one time been into what is known as cutting. If you've worked in... Public schools, you might know, thanks baby, you might know a little bit of that story. Uh, cutting is this self-injurious behavior that primarily affects young people trying to cope with problems. Pre-adolescent and teen years kind of see about 90% of this practice. Maybe you've known somebody, uh, maybe some teenager or uh, early college person who was kind of involved in this. Nearly half of those, okay, so 90% of them are early adolescence, pre-adolescence, or adolescence. Nearly half of those who engage in this behavior have been sexually abused, we find. Females make up about 60% of self-harmers. But the idea here is it's self-injurious behavior um, it, that manifests itself in a young person. Regardless of the... It, it may be some other kind of self-abuse that kind of, kind of turns up. Um, a, a person who just kind of lives recklessly or they engage in reckless driving, substance abuse or promiscuity or whatever. Regardless of the form that self-injury takes, the problem is often evidenced with intense emotional pain. Um, a poor sense of self-worth and frustration with a seemingly unresolvable life situation. Now, what you and I need to discover here is this demonized man in our lesson today also was engaged in some kind of self-destructive behavior. Can I tell you something? The devil's ultimate victory is your spiritual defeat. And he'll get to you however he can. Uh, even if it causes uh, you to go through a period of life 
a period of time when you're kind of hurting yourself in one way or another. What the devil recognizes is the same thing that the Holy Spirit knows. When the, when the Holy Spirit says to you, you know, you just don't want to do that. He's, the Holy Spirit is not just being a killjoy. He's trying to keep you from hurting yourself. Sinful behavior is self-injury. Okay? Those patterns in my life that the Holy Spirit knows are going to destroy me is what he's working on. And it's those same patterns that the devil is trying to convince me into. Now, so, in verse 28, one of the most important parts of this chapter, I think. You remember again, they're in a foreign land. There may be a few Jewish, Jewish people around, but there may not be a single Jewish person in this scenario. Okay? The disciples are with Jesus. Certainly they've got a Jewish background. And when they see what's going on here, um, if they're not anxious, which I bet they are, okay, there is somebody who is anxious. In fact, there are several somebodies who are anxious. In verse 28, who is it? Well, the townspeople eventually are. That's right. In fact, they, they kind of reject this whole thing, which is interesting. But in verse 28, who's, who's getting kind of anxious here? I'm sorry? I think the disciples are, but I think the demons are as well. You catch that? I know the disciples have got to be, it's like, what is going on here? Remember, they're tired from the trip over that didn't go all that well. All right? And they, they encounter this guy. If the disciples are not anxious, the demons are. Now, let's look back a little bit. Somebody read 434. Somebody grab 434 and read it. Same book. Just turn back a page. Two. 434. Okay. I'm looking for it. Sally, you'll do it for me, won't you? 434. And then I need somebody else to read 521. Thank you, Eileen. That'd be great. I want us to compare the reactions here. Okay, and let's read 521 first. Now, these are the, the, these are the, this is another story, but these are experts in the law. What are they supposed to know about God standing before them? They're supposed to recognize him, right? 521, what does it say? I know it's a rhetorical question, but it, but it proves my point here. Those who should have recognized him didn't. Those who supposedly studied day and night in the scriptures, the scribes, who should have known the scriptures, should have said, this is the one we've been waiting for all our lives. This is the one our parents were waiting for. And yet they didn't recognize him. Now, look at 434. There's another telling of uh, a story of another uh, demon-possessed person who, who, who was healed. Um, somebody... Uh, who was it that got that one? Thank you, Sally. Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the only one of God. The demons in this story are saying the same thing that the demons are saying in our story. What do they say? They know exactly who he is. Are you catching this? The demons know. According to James 2, James says... The devil knows, the devil believes, and he trembles. That's what we're seeing here. I find it really, really intriguing here that um, those who should know don't know. And yet the demons know here. They're in a foreign land. There's not a whole lot of 
people who believe in the Old Testament certainly are not part of this uh, Jewish system. So it's not that. It's, it's that this fella who is under complete control by demonic activity has the demons speaking for him. And they're saying, they're identifying, Jesus says, whom? The Son of God. Isn't it interesting that they get it right? Interesting, isn't it? They believe, but they don't follow. Is it possible to believe and not follow? I find that really intriguing. Okay? Let's look at 28 again, because I think it's really interesting how it's worded here. Okay? Seeing Jesus, he cried out. Now remember, somebody's crying out really for him from within side. He cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Sounds like a statement of faith to me. But a different kind of faith, right? I beg you, don't torment me, he said. They say. All right, now, let's, let's go on. Obviously, this man is in the control of someone else. But verse 29, I want to be sure we get the sequence right. Okay? Get the sequence right. What happens in 29 that is mentioned here? Let's, let's read it together one more time. Okay, now remember, the demons have cried out using the man's voice box, identifying Jesus as who he is, Son of the Most High God. In verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he'd break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. What has already happened according to the first phrase of verse 29? He's already cast them out. What you and I need to know here is that the man once controlled by the demons has already been freed. You know, what I kind of want to see here, there's no incantations here. You know, Jesus doesn't have to kind of do some kind of mumbo jumbo. You know, some kind of a, he's got to recite something. We don't see any evidence of that. Uh, There's no incantation that he uses. It's clear this is a demon that has been in control of this young man's life. And Jesus just commands the demons to leave. There's only one who could do that. Uh, It's not in the original language. But I figure in Aramaic, Jesus said something like, scat. (laughs) Beat it. And what has already happened is the devil's already been defeated. The rest of it's just kind of negotiation. Okay? The devil knows who's in control. Did you know that? I mean... He'll try to convince you that the Lord's not in control. But he knows who's in control. I love the fact that Jesus just walks up in this scene, this man is out of control, and Jesus just says, leave him. Whatever it was he said was simple and direct and powerful. And the man is left freed from that. Now for a moment here, 
the demons are still trying to speak to Jesus, uh, even though the man has been freed. Now, my question is this. Is there any malady beyond Jesus' scope? That's obviously a rhetorical question, isn't it? Is there anything beyond him? Did this only happen 2,000 years ago? Does it not, is it not possible to get healing today? Here's what my Bible says in Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did then, he can do now. And you remember what he's doing right here. Teresa, this ought to be encouragement for your daily work. He set the captive free. I love it. I've said this to you during this series before, but if nothing else, fall in love with his style. <laughs> How he does things is a marvel. Now, in verse 30, this man begins to kind of talk, have a little dialogue with Jesus. Uh, the demons actually are kind of talking with Jesus using the man's voice. And uh, so Jesus, in, in a common parlance of the day, Jesus says, by the way, to the man, he's speaking to the demons, but he's talking to them kind of through the man. He says, what is your name? Now, uh, there was some thought if you knew the name of the tormentor, you'd have power over them. Uh, Jesus doesn't really need that. Remember, he's already kind of taken care of this problem. But he says, what is your name? And the demons have to answer. And what's the answer they give? Legion. That is not a specific name. That's actually a category. Or it could be um, a um, kind of a, kind of a, um, it, it's saying uh, there's, there's a bunch of us in here. The truth is, the word that is used there, legion, is the word that is used to describe a contingent of Roman soldiers, typically 5,000 to 5,400 in number. I think this word was carefully chosen. The man's tormentors, here's what you can put in your blank, were many. Later on, when Jesus cast them into the, the herd of swine, uh, in one telling of the story, it says that 2,000 pigs fell to their death that day. So we can at least extrapolate there might have been at least a couple of thousand. That Jesus read here, that he knew, that he called out and threw out. Just with the word saying, get out of here. I love the power in his voice. Is the fact that it was 5,400 people or um, 5,400 demons or was it 2,000, does that matter? It really doesn't matter. It could have been 10,000 and they're done. In, with a word. With the Aramaic version of scat, skedaddle. Yeah, there we go. They're done. The man's torments were many. Now, in verse 31, they begin to, the, the demons begin to try to negotiate with Jesus a little bit. What do they not want to take place? Uh, they're actually, they, what they want to take place is they would like to go into another person. And Jesus is not going to allow that. He wouldn't do that, right? So, 
they're negotiating to be send us somewhere else, but don't send us here. Now let's look at a couple of places. Somebody go, if you will, to the end of your Bible. I want somebody to read Revelation 19, verse 19 and 20. Who will get that? Thank you, Julie. And I want somebody else, if you would, to read Matthew 25, 41. It's going to tell us the same thing. Thank you, Karen. It's going to tell us uh, where the devil and his angels, which that's who we're talking about here, where they're eventually going to end up. All right? Julie, if you got to Revelation 19, read 19 and 20. Where were they cast? Somewhere you don't want to go. Catch that? All right. Okay. This is John saying this. Karen, read a similar thing that Jesus says himself in Matthew 25, 41. Okay. There is a place that the devil and his angels are going to be sent. Okay. And what the... What the uh, the, the demons here are negotiating, they're saying, don't send us into the abyss. They're talking about this. Now, the word abyss is a Greek word that actually has no English correlation. So it just occurs. Uh, it's kind of transliterated here, uh, right directly from the Greek. Um, it's how the Greek word would sound in English, is how it's kind of written in our English Bibles. But the idea here is they're saying, don't send us there the place that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 25, the place that John is referring to in his vision in Revelation 19, the final resting place for the devil, a place of torment, a place you don't want to go, and the demons are saying, don't send us there. Who's in control here? <laughs> it seems really clear to me who's in control here, and it's not the devil. Uh, in verse 32, the demons are clearly powerless. In this exchange. Now, if you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about what Jewish people, kind of their relationship with pigs, you'll know you're in Gentile territory here, right? If you read, what's, what's, a, what's a Jewish person's relationship with a pig? They stay away from them. They don't eat them. They don't deal with them. They don't touch them, okay? So these herdsmen that are there that have a, a, a herd of swine, so the idea here is that the demons are saying, don't send us there. So the demons said, send us here. And they see pigs and they say, send us there. I can't imagine. A, 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 it's not much better of a situation, right? But, okay, to them, at least do this for us. So he does. He sends them into the herd of swine. They end up in the same place. They end up in the same place. Isn't it interesting? They end up in the same place. Um, they beg him. Again, who is in control? Now, in verse 33, what I'm going to call here a one-sided battle ends up, as Joe has said here, with them landing exactly where they begged Jesus not to send them in the first place. Evidently, um, they, their control, the demon's control over the swine wasn't strong enough. Okay? Swine said, whoo, getting out of here. 
even if it means I got to jump over the cliff, so they do. What I want to call this, guys, is this is a one-sided battle. This is Pee Wee Herman versus Muhammad Ali. Okay? I was reading to Rhonda this morning at breakfast about, about this, is, um, this is the 1992 dream team, the first dream team. You remember them? The first, uh, the, the uh, Olympic, in, in 1988, uh, I think the U.S. came in third in basketball in the Summer Olympics, and they decided that they're going to put NBA players in in 92. Listen to this group of players. You ready? David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Larry Bird, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Clyde Drexler, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Chris Mullen, Charles Barkley, and guess who else? Magic Johnson was a port guard. But Magic Johnson, I read a comment he made. He said, I looked to my left and there was Larry Bird. I looked to my right and there was Mark, Michael Jordan. I didn't know who to throw it to. <laughs> Knowing Magic, so he just shot it, you know. But their, their smallest, their smallest um, uh, margin of victory was 38 points in all the games of the Olympics. They won some by more than 80 points. It was literally, if you remember watching that, it's who are they going to beat today? The devil is outmanned in a fight with Jesus. You know? The devil is outmanned in a fight with Jesus and you. Can I tell you that? Whatever it is you're going through, the devil is outmanned. He's outgunned. And I need to treat him as such. Look down at verse 34, back in our text. I want to finish this up. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and they reported in the city and went out in the country. Basically, they told anybody who'd listen. The people went out to see what had happened and they came to see Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus what, what does he look like now? He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He's having a conversation with Jesus. Don't you just love this? And they became frightened. And they said to Jesus, you know what? You need to leave our area. I find it intriguing. The herdsmen report the results. And the crowd's reaction was incredible to me. No chains on the man, probably scars from the chains. But no more chains. It says the crowd was afraid. What do you think they're afraid of? It's not a godly fear. It's not, I put a reference to Psalm 22. It's not the kind of fear that, that's holy, uh, heavenly respect of God. It's not, it's not that. This is, this is an apprehension. What are they afraid of? They didn't like it messing up their economy, did they? The herdsmen are pretty ticked. Jesus had messed up their lives. Can I tell you something? When Jesus comes in and sets you free, he may mess up your life a little bit. And probably in a way it needs to be messed up a little, you know? They were afraid of the one. 
Their normal had been changed. But let me, let me ask this again. What was normal for them? Normal for them was to have a guy living in a cemetery out of control and they just ignored him all the time. That was their normal. And Jesus arrives, and I think, I wonder, in context, if he went through all that storm and all that trip just to get to this one man who needed to be set free, who he'd never heard of him, but the demons inside of him were scared to death of Jesus. And he set him free. Now, the man who, I asked the question, is there any issue that's insurmountable for the power of the Son of the Most High God. That's what the devil called Jesus right here. And I want to say, who's in chains now? <laughs> it's the devil who's in chains now. Do you trust him? The man who a few minutes earlier could only scream and shriek said softly, I believe. I shared with you last week some of the story, I think it was last week, some of the story of uh, what really uh, uh, John Newton's story was long before he wrote the words in English to uh, the, the great old hymn, Amazing Grace. Chris Tomlin, 10 years or so ago, appended a, um, um, a refrain, an additional refrain to Amazing Grace, and it goes something like this. My chains are gone. I've been set free. The blood of Jesus has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Amazing love. Unending love. Amazing grace. You know what? I believe that He is still in the chain-busting business. I hope that encourages you in whatever struggle you're in. And I hope you will join me in saying to the devil, devil, I believe. We'll be in Luke 15 next week. We'll look at a really, really familiar story. And we'll see another story of faith and trust. Thanks. See you next week.